Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 18, the fourth continuation of Leviticus chapter 11. We are uh, going to continue tonight this very complex issue of the clean and the unclean, the holy and the common, and the kosher and the non-kosher diet today. And I want to begin by stating that I don't pretend to have all the truth on these matters. Entire denominations and even Jewish sects have been built around them, so there's widely varying beliefs. I'm going to tell you like I told you last week. I'm telling you what I think is the case. Now, we looked at Mark 7 last week, and I demonstrated to you that as with all Scripture, one must put every verse within its proper context and its proper cultural context for the time. Okay? To do otherwise is a rather complete waste of time. All right? and, and it can create and perpetuate the most error-filled kind of doctrines. Now, the proper context for Mark 7 was that it wasn't even discussing kosher food. Right? Rather, it was all about ritual hand-washing that had been initiated by the rabbis. Right? The hand-washing, understand, had nothing to do with sanitation. They weren't trying to wash germs off. Right? It had to do with making the hands that would touch their kosher food ritually clean. Right? Otherwise, the uncleanness of the hands, theoretically would transfer to their kosher food and negate its clean status. Now, let's go to another place in the New Testament tonight where it is said, typically, that uncleanness, at least of food, was abolished. Go to Romans chapter 14. And we're going to read the whole chapter because I love context. Romans chapter 14. Now, as for a person whose trust is weak, welcome him, but do not get into arguments over opinions. One person has trust that will allow him to eat anything, while another whose trust is weak who eats only vegetables. The one who eats anything must not look down on the one who abstains. The abstainer must not pass judgment on the one who eats anything. Right? Because God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on someone else's servant? It is before his own master that he will stand and fall. And the fact is that he will stand because the Lord's able to make him stand. Now, one person considers some days more holy than others, while someone else regards them as all being alike. And what is important is for each to be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes a day as special does so to honor the Lord. Also, he who eats anything eats to honor the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Likewise, the abstainer abstains to honor the Lord, and he too gives thanks to God. For none of us lives only in relation to himself, and none of us dies only in relation to himself. For if we live, we live in relation to the Lord. If we die, we die in relation to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. Indeed, it was for this very reason that Messiah died and came back to life, so that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or why do you look down on your brother? For all of us will stand before God's judgment seats, since it is written in the Tanakh, As I live, says Adonai, every knee will bend before me. Every tongue will publicly acknowledge God. So then, every one of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on each other. Instead, meet this one judgment. Not to put a stumbling block or a snare in your brother's way. I know that is, at least I've been persuaded by the Lord Meshua the Messiah, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if a person considers something unclean, then for him it's unclean. And if your brother is being upset by the food that you eat, your life is no longer one of love. Do not, by your eating habits, destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. Do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as bad. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, joy, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And anyone who serves the Messiah in this fashion both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. So, let us pursue the things that make for shalom and mutual upholding. Don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. True enough, all things are clean, but it's wrong for anybody by his eating to cause someone to fall away. What is good not to eat? Uh, what is good is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The belief you hold about such things, keep between yourself and God. Happy the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of something. But the doubter comes under condemnation if he eats because his action is not based on trust and anything not based on trust is sin. Now, this chapter, so typically Paul, seems to muddy the waters even further about kosher eating. But there's a lot of information here that can help us. But first, let's get the context clear. This chapter is speaking to believers. Step one. Okay. In fact, it's speaking primarily he to Gentile believers in Rome. Hence the name Romans. Okay? Gentile believers who lived in a pagan culture who knew next to nothing of Torah and especially of the Jewish purity laws that had been elaborated and expanded to the nth degree by sages and rabbis for centuries. Now let me repeat that because it's so key. Just as the Old Testament and all but a few, um, well, all but a small fraction of the New Testament is speaking to Jews within a Jewish culture, there are a few places that speak more to Gentiles within a Gentile culture. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians have sections that are pretty much devoted to Gentiles. And frankly, use a lot of clumsy Gentile terminology. Remember, Paul was a Jew. Okay? And Romans 14 is one of those sections. Now, this chapter opens by discussing two kinds of believers, both of them Gentile. Okay? Those with someone what uh, described as weak trust, those with strong trust. And the idea is that weak believers are more easily 
swayed, and easily offended. They get their feelings hurt. They're unsure. They vacillate on spiritual matters, and so they're rather easily swept up in doubt that what they believe is even true. More to the point, these weak believers are, are some Gentiles who have not sufficiently matured yet in their newfound faith, yet to let go of those deeply embedded Roman cultural customs that include Roman holy days. Oh yes, there were dozens of Roman holy days. Because there were so many gods and goddesses. And they all had birthdays and they all had anniversaries and they they celebrated them. They had religious festivals to those gods and to the emperor. Even so-called Sabbaths invoked by the Roman government. Days off, days of rest. Oh yes, they had those in the Gentile society. Those Gentiles who are identified here as having strong trust are those who have, despite all the family and social pressures, given up most of the Roman cultural customs that offend the principles within the Holy Scriptures. And in the midst of that Gentile world, they live in their adopted Torah principles. These so-called strong believers are confident in their faith. They know why they do what they do. They're understanding of others who practice their beliefs a little differently. And so they can better resist people who might come along and question or criticize their own religious practices. Now, this was Paul's audience in the book of Romans. So he has has to explain a lot of spiritual matters to a bunch of utterly ignorant Gentiles with pagan backgrounds. And he also has to speak to yet a minority part of his audience consisting of tradition-based Jews, mostly, in this particular audience, Messianic Jews, who had long ago tossed aside most of the intended purpose and meaning of the Torah. Most of these Jews that he was speaking to had long ago migrated to the Roman Empire, and so they were thoroughly indoctrinated in Roman culture. Of course, each of these new believers brought along with them a lot of their old beliefs and traditions from whatever their background was, generally not even recognizing that these deceptions were what they were because they were such just an entrenched part of their lives. They never had examined them before, just as it is for us today. So Paul explains... Food should never be an excuse for disharmony among believers. I don't care what you believe about it. Period. End. All things should be done to honor the Lord. No one should be judgmental of a brother or a sister in Christ who eats differently than they do. What is most important is not to eat or to drink wine or to do something in a manner that will cause your weaker brother to stumble. Why? Because this is really all about the kingdom of God. It always was. Okay? Of which spiritual Israel is a part. In this new spiritual reality 
While the clean and unclean foods still exist for believers who make up true spiritual Israel, ritual now takes on a whole new light. Okay. Then Paul says something in the midst of chapter 14 that I think brings us right to the crux of the matter when it comes to the question of dietary laws. He says in the last half of verse 14 that if a person considers something unclean, that for him it's unclean. And later, in verse 22, the belief that you hold about some things keep between yourself and God, but the doubter comes under condemnation if he eats because his action isn't based on trust. And anything not based on trust is sin. He also points out that nothing is unclean of itself. You know what the word inherently means? It means it's of itself, just the way it is. Okay? That is a hawk or a pig, for example. They weren't created physically malfunctioning. All right? I mean, God didn't create some kind of animals that, that were all messed up from the time he created them. It's not even a matter of hygienic or nutritious versus unhealthy necessarily. It's a designation that Jehovah gave to certain things. And I'm not sure of the reasons for all of his choices. I don't really know. Okay. But what I am certain of is that Jehovah did not create a species of defective animals. Okay. And I'm also certain that this all had to do, in a much larger sense, with teaching mankind about spiritual principles in a way that we could be taught. Okay. Now, while much of the church has decided that the statement, nothing is unclean of itself, means that the laws of kosher eating don't apply anymore, other elements of the church use that same statement, now follow me here, to say that homosexuality, bestiality, even adultery don't apply anymore. Did you know that? Oh yeah. They say, and this is in the most liberal segments of the church, they say that Paul's statement validates the concept of moral relativism. Whereas it says a little later in Romans, well, what's important is for each to be con to convinced in his own mind. Moral relativism. Now, some of you may scoff at that and say, well, how can segments of the church say those two statements together establish moral relativism as a God-ordained principle? Well, if you take it exactly what it says, it would seem that that's what it's saying. If one declares that unclean has been completely done away with, and that we can then just start running around and deciding for ourselves what is clean and unclean, then why would you argue against the formerly unclean act of having sex with animals as now being perfectly fine in God's eyes? What's wrong with that? Or that since everything has been declared, declared clean, then the unclean act of prostitution must now be perfectly fine. Look, I'm not giving you hypothetical situations here. This has been happening for centuries within segments of the church. I mean, do you see where this kind of thinking leads us? Okay, folks, it is not possible, on the one hand, to have Christ declare during the Sermon on the Mount that not one iota of the Torah has been set aside and that anybody who teaches that 
shall be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. But on the other hand say, well, yeah, but all the laws of clean and unclean have been abolished. How do you do that? Well, we all inherently know that bestiality and prostitution have not been declared as acceptable to God. So to remedy this conundrum, some pick and choose where unclean has been abolished, food being the favored target, and at other times unclean still exists. Now one of the reasons that Paul is so studied and frankly often vilified, I know a lot of people just hate reading Paul, is because it seems he'll contradict himself from one epistle to the next or like here, sometimes even within the same verse. Right? I mean, I think I have, thankfully, gained some insight into this misunderstanding that I'd like to share with you. Now, what Paul is getting at when he says that each has to make up his own mind about some things concerning ritual cleanliness is this. I've stated on numerous occasions that sometimes we need to be a little more respectful and understanding of Jewish traditions because more often than not, they began as an honest attempt to fill some very substantial blanks left in the laws and the regulations of Torah. There are so many broad principles that are laid out in the Bible, but when it comes to the details of exactly how we institute them, often will have precious little direction on that. The Hebrews have been dealing with this issue for centuries. And the result was this voluminous set of Jewish traditions that developed. Some of which, frankly, really went off the deep end. Yet, there were hundreds of legitimate issues that had to be decided by somebody. And among the Jews... This system of decision was already established and things had long ago been decided. But among the Gentiles of Rome, these new believers, they were just now beginning to even think about these things. They were just now starting to deal with these matters. And Paul was explaining that they were not obligated to always do things as the Jews had decided to do them so long ago. Therefore, as they stumbled across these many difficult issues, they were to use what they had learned to establish their own solutions. And that is exactly what has happened within the Gentile church. Each of the now several thousand denominations have come up with their own solutions to fill in the blanks. And we usually sit around and snipe at one another because guess what? My solution is God-ordained, but yours isn't. Isn't that true? Paul isn't telling these Gentile believers of Rome that they should just make it up as they go. He's saying, look, where there's room here for some discussion you've got some choices you can make. And you don't have to do it the way the Jews decided to do it. There is no doubt that anyone who has been a Christian for more than a few weeks soon finds 
that the Holy Scriptures give us principles and commands which oftentimes puts us in a real bind. I mean, that we find ourselves in situations whereby we have a hard time knowing just what to do to, to obey God because sometimes two or more guard, godly principles that apply to our situation actually seem to be at odds with each other. If we obey one, we may well be disobeying the other one. Now, the situation of what to do when rules collide was an everyday matter among Jews in Jesus' day, and it remains so to this day. The method used by rabbis to settle these issues involved a technique in Hebrew called kal vomer. Kal vomer. Literally meaning light and heavy. The idea was that when it just wasn't possible to follow all the Torah rules that might to a, apply to a specific situation because they conflicted. The solution was to decide which rule carried the most, most weight, light and heavy. In other words, just like in our civil law system in America, whereby two or more laws might come into play in any given matter, the judge's duty is to decide which of those laws is preeminent for this certain case. That's the essence of Col Volmer. Now, let me give you a simplistic but very real-life example of this in operation. During World War II, Cory ten Boom hid Jews destined to be arrested and exterminated from the Nazis. She was confronted on many occasions by local authorities asking if she knew the whereabouts of such and such of a Jewish person. And of course her answer was, no, she didn't know. She didn't know where they were. Now the scriptures make it perfectly clear that lying is sinful under any circumstance. There is no such thing as righteous lying should Corey Ten Boom have told the truth? Even if it meant giving up those Jews to the Nazis and then leaving it to God's providence to have their fate decided? After all, in addition to lying, she was also violating the duly applied laws of her society. Aren't we told we're to submit to the authority of our human governments because the hand of God created human government? What do we do? What's Corey Ten Boom to do? On the other hand, the Bible makes it clear that every human life is precious to Jehovah. And that murder, unjustified killing, is a terrible sin. And that Jewish human life, in a certain sense, is even more important to God because they're his chosen people. They're the apple of his eye. And as we've learned from studying Torah, sins are indeed classified and some are worse than others. And the rabbis realized that, that they had to rely on that fact that there was a structured system. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any way to resolve any matter whereby two commands collide. Because there would be no weight. If everything was exactly the same, a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin, 
then there's no light and heavy. There's no better and worse. There's no way to make a decision. You're stalemated. Christians tend to deal with matters like this in a very haphazard fashion. We often make these knee-jerk moral judgments, usually based on our feelings at the time and often whatever, frankly, is the currently politically correct solution. We really haven't developed within our church a good way to take issues like this head on. So oftentimes they're just avoided. At other times we find ourselves on the defensive because non-Christians correctly will say that such and such a biblical rule conflicts with another and biblical rule in some cases. And we say, oh, no, 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 that never happens. That never happens. Oh, yeah, it does. But the Hebrews didn't have that worry. They were well aware that people were going to have to make these choices and these judgments concerning God's laws and commands, and it was going to be a normal and practically daily matter. So here in my example of Corey Ten Boom, we have several biblical rules and principles colliding. Colmomer looks at it and says, while all the rules that apply are certainly valid and true, the one regarding the importance of human life trumps the commandments not to lie. And therefore, that carries more weight than even the command to submit to the demands of human government. Yet lying under any circumstance and defiance against your civil authorities remains an affront to God. Unfortunately, that is simply the human condition since the fall of Adam and Eve. This is the bind we're all born into. Avoidance of sin in our lives is nearly impossible. And that's the reason that Yeshua did what he did for us. Jesus invoked the call Homer approach on several occasions. And if you know what you're looking for, you can see him doing it. One which most of us easily remembers occurs in the book of Luke chapter 13 when Yeshua was told that he was breaking the law by healing a woman on the Sabbath. Healing was considered by the rabbis to be work. Here Jesus explains in typical Calvomer style that while indeed both the rule concerning working on the Sabbath and the rule concerning healing were valid, the rule concerning healing trumped the rule of the Sabbath. And this lines up perfectly with Yeshua's explanation in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Did Jesus hereby do away with the rules of Sabbath? Heavens, no. In fact, he really didn't even argue as to whether healing qualified as being work. He didn't say, no, healing's not work. He simply declared that in that situation, being merciful and healing that person was more important in God's eyes than breaking a Sabbath day rule. Now, the lesson here is that although the law, the Torah still exists and the clean and unclean designations still exist in certain situations, the need to put love and mercy and shalom above those rules will carry more weight. Love and mercy and shalom trump the laws of Kashrut. 
when in certain situations the two run headlong into one another. But let me be clear, and this is the key, it's not our typical human idea of love and mercy and shalom that's to be upheld. Because that changes with the times. It's his. Our sympathetic approach to people is not relevant. Biblical love and mercy is not so much about being nice or enjoying our warm, fuzzy emotions while we're doing it or pleasing somebody. We have to understand what love, mercy, and shalom is in God's eyes if we're going to apply it to our lives. Even more the fact that love, mercy, and shalom do in some instances trump the kosher eating rules and other rules about clean and unclean. That doesn't mean they do in all cases. Nor that the rules have been abolished. This is what allows Paul to say that if it's unclean for you, then it's unclean. And the belief that you hold about such things, such as dietary laws, keep between yourself and God. By the way, that doesn't mean you're supposed to keep everything secret. This is just about a personal relationship with Yehovah, right? via Jesus Christ. This is about your obedience to God and doing what he tells you to do or not to do versus some kind of group think or doing what everybody else does just because everybody else does it. Now, I'm going to tell you quite honestly that if I had not personally experienced what it is that Paul is saying here, it would probably be even harder than it is for me already to try and communicate this. So as we develop a personal relationship with Yeshua, we're going to find our Lord telling us things to do or not to do one-on-one personally. Yet nothing he tells us will ever be outside the spiritual principles laid down in the Holy Scripture. Never. And what he tells you will have everything to do with where you are in your personal walk with him. And your purpose in God's kingdom. Now here's the thing to keep in mind. None of what I'm discussing with you, the kosher eating laws, clean and unclean, which I'm telling you, I'm convinced they still exist. None of that has any bearing whatsoever on your salvation. Nada. Nothing. Christ and Christ alone saves You and I do not ascend the ladder of holiness only to fall off when we commit a sin and then climb back up that holiness ladder again. But that is what happened to the Hebrews before Christ. When we see upon the advent of Yeshua, or rather what we see is the completion of a great circle. The Torah is given to the Moses in stone and all of its requirements and rules and commands and rituals are physical representations of spiritual principles. Spiritual principles that have always existed in heaven. The spiritual principles of heaven were brought to mankind in the form of the written Torah. Over the centuries, those spiritual principles were played out. They were practiced. They were taught to each following generation of Hebrews by means of the rules and rituals laid down in the Torah. The tabernacle, The priesthood, the sacrificial animals, the dietary laws all played major roles in explaining and practicing holiness. 
the core spiritual principle to Israel. But as Jehovah foreknew was going to happen in time, man could not resist slowly forgetting the spiritual purpose of Torah and eventually turning his commands and rituals into nothing but a series of robotic do's and don'ts. And harsh man-made doctrines would follow. Take the blessing of Torah and turn it into a doctrine of burden. Torah had always been based on trust and faith in Yehovah. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Torah was always, hear this, for an already redeemed people. It was not their means of redemption. God had already redeemed his people, Israel, from Egypt before he gave them the Torah. Torah has no function for those who are not redeemed. That is why Torah is utterly worthless for the seeker. But it is critical for every redeemed person. Jesus came onto the scene to not only restore the spiritual meaning of Torah, or as he put it, to fill it full with meaning, but to take it back to its heavenly, eternal purpose. Paul, therefore, says that if you perform rituals and rules just because they're rituals and rules, it's worthless. You're wasting your time. Matter of fact, you're offending God. Add trust in Christ to the mix. Ah, now you have meaning. Now you have meaning. Now, as regards clean and unclean, in my opinion, generally speaking, it's impossible for one who continues to trust in Yeshua to become unclean. Yet we're cautioned over and over to stay away from unclean things. Why must we stay away from unclean things if they don't present a danger to us? Because even though we may not lose our holy status, we can become relatively unusable because of our disobedience. And while obedience brings blessing, disobedience curtails blessing. One well-known example is in 1 Corinthians, where we're being told never to commit the act of joining ourselves to a prostitute, an unclean person, and let's say that for exactly what it means, don't have sex with a prostitute, because it is incompatible with holiness for a sanctified person to be physically joined in sexual intercourse with an unclean person. While we, I mean, what we unite ourselves with, boy, here's big spiritual principle. What we unite ourselves with identifies who we are. When we're united with Christ, we're identified with Christ. Therefore, because of our holy status, we must never come into contact with the unclean. But that doesn't mean we'll lose our holy status, nor will we become unclean if we do touch uncleanness. I'll say it again. We must not violate the divine pattern of holiness whereby the holy are commanded to stay separate from uncleanness. Now, how can it be that there remains clean and unclean foods, the same one as always, 
And yet a believer doesn't contract uncleanness if he partakes in that unclean food. I think that Christ's attribute of being living water is that powerful. It's almost as though the Lord knows that we're going to indulge in something unclean and purification for us is made the instant before our contact with uncleanness that would defile us. I don't know. It's like we're purified that instant the impurity occurs. It's somewhat like being made immune to a disease. Getting vaccinated. You know, it's not that the disease doesn't exist any longer. It's just that you've been inoculated against it. That's, that said, Paul says if something is unclean for you, it's unclean. What does that mean? I believe it's telling us that in a mysterious way that is only possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as you draw closer to the Lord, that He will teach us about what in, un, unclean is as we can hear it. As we can hear it. You know, those of us with children and grandchildren have learned that it's useless. Matter of fact, it's counterproductive to try and teach them something that they are simply not mature enough yet to hear and accept. Okay. And that determination is made on a child-by-child -child basis. No two grow and mature at the same rate. I think it's similar, maybe. When it comes to God identifying to each of us what's unclean for us, okay, yet all these things that are identified in Leviticus as unclean remain unclean. It will never be different for us than what is unclean in Holy Scripture. So, if you know in your spirit that the Lord, at this point, has spoken to you and He's pointed out, you know those unclean things I told you about? Okay? Stay away from that one. It's unclean for you. You can do that. Avoid it. He's told you this because at that moment in your life, you're ready. You can hear it now. And in his perfect timing and judgment, you're finally ready to understand and obey at least that part of it. If you respond to his call, then you're trusting and you're obedient. Has the Lord laid it on your heart that some biblically defined unclean food is just not for you anymore? Then follow it. Based on that trust. Not on some rule or some ritual or frankly what your friends think. Pro or con. Don't use Leviticus as a cookbook. Don't worry about what others think. In fact, you're not even ob obligated to divulge to anybody else what God has shown you. It's between you and Him. And a critical importance. Don't judge other believers either direction about kosher eating. As a person who eats kosher, you have nothing to brag about. Nothing. All right? And as a person who sees no foods as unclean, you have nothing to defend yourself about. Okay? But neither are you to criticize somebody who does eat kosher in some form or another. And we could go on indefinitely with this discussion, but I think it's time to wrap it up and continue on in Leviticus.
Next up, Leviticus 12 and uncleanness as regards menstruation and childbirth. This ought to be interesting. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Very short chapter. Adonai said to Moshe, Moses, tell the people of Israel, if a woman conceives and gives birth to a boy, she'll be unclean for seven days with the same uncleanness as in Nidah when she's having her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the baby's foreskin is to be circumcised. She is to wait an additional 33 days to be purified from her blood. She's not to touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary until the time of her purification is over. But if she gives birth to a girl, she'll be unclean for two weeks, as in her nidah, and she is to wait another 66 days to be purified from her blood. When the days of her purification are over, whether for a son or for a daughter, she's to bring a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting to the priest. He will offer it before Adonai, make an atonement for her, thus she will be purified from her discharge of blood. Such is the law. For a woman who gives birth, whether to a boy or a girl, if she can't afford a lamb, she's to take two doves or two young pigeons, the one for a bird offering, the other for a sin offering, and the Kohen priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. <clears throat> now the next several chapters... are going to deal with some additional aspects of clean and unclean. And as we've learned, clean and unclean are two terms that have great importance in developing what holiness is and in demonstrating this entire God-ordained pattern of holiness. And we've spent months now in the first few chapters of Leviticus which discuss the various types of sacrifices because each type addressed a different facet of sin and purity. From the fact that our very nature is infused with sin to acts of disobedience against Jehovah as sin to sins intended and unintended to, to unjust dealing with our fellow man which is also sin and that sin's classified in a number of ways. What I want for you to take from all this studying we're doing on ritual purity is that there are many facets to clean and unclean, pure and impure, and that in general, unclean and impure is not the same thing as sin. Unclean and impure is not the same thing as sin. Jehovah spends so much time teaching all this stuff to us about clean and unclean and sin and everything, it, it cannot be because it doesn't matter. Now, among the many challenging aspects of what I've been teaching you is that clean and unclean designations of things, whether it's people or animals or food or whatever, is not the result of some inherent, abnormal, physical or biological feature. God didn't create anything abnormal. Nor did some normal animal species somehow evolve into something abnormal after the fall. Rather, clean and unclean are designations that Jehovah assigned to certain things 
for his ultimate purpose of teaching mankind important spiritual principles. It was a way of demonstrating that which is of the spirit world and therefore invisible to men in a manner that we can see and comprehend. I, I cannot possibly tell you what God's rationale was for choosing those animals and foods to be clean and unclean. I don't know. All right? The Bible in no ways makes an attempt to tell us. One question that I answered for you, though, is this. Are the designations of clean and unclean still in existence? Should they matter to us, or did Christ abolish them? My answer, without any equivocation, is that clean and unclean things still exist. I know some of you have a hard time with that. So we carefully went through Mark 7, all of it. Not just the last half, where Jesus supposedly did away with kosher eating, but of course that wasn't what was happening. It was rather, Yeshua was explaining that man-made traditions about ritual hand-washing never came from the scriptures. Now I can assure you this was Yeshua's purpose. Okay, And it was his intent, because guess what? We get this exact same story in Mark 7 in Matthew. The synoptic gospels are called synoptic because they tell essentially the same stories, but from different viewpoints. The viewpoints of the specific authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke are the synoptic gospels. Turn to Matthew 15 in your Bibles. Matthew 15 is synoptic of Mark 7. It's the same story. It's just told by two different authors. Now we're going to read from verse verses 1 through 20 because after that it just changes subject and goes off somewhere else. Then of course I'll be reading from the complete Jewish Bible. Whatever you have will work just fine. Matthew 15. Then some Prushim, the, the uh, Pharisees, and Torah teachers from Jerusalem came to Yeshua and asked him, Why is it that your Talmudim, disciples, break the tradition of the elders? They don't do ritual hand washing before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the command of God by your traditions? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone says to his father or mother, I promise to give to God what I might have used to help you, then he is rid of his duty to honor his father and mother. Thus, by your tradition, you make no one void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless, because they teach... Man made rules as if they were doctrines. Then he called to the crowd. And he called them to him and he said, Listen and understand this. What makes a person unclean is not what goes into his mouth, rather what comes out of his mouth that is what makes him unclean. The disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just said? And he replied, Every plant that my Father in heaven has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Let them be. They're just blind guides. 
When a blind guide guides another blind man, both of them will fall in a pit. And Kepha, Peter, said to him, Explain this parable to us. So he said, Don't you understand, even now? Don't you see that anything that enters the mouth goes into the stomach and just passes out into the latrine? What comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart. That's what makes a person unclean. Because out of the heart come forth wicked thoughts, murder, adultery, all kinds of sexual immorality, theft, lies, slanders. These are what really make a person unclean. But eating without doing ritual hand washing does not make a person unclean. Oh! You mean this wasn't about eating kosher food after all? What was this about? Hand washing. Just like he said in Mark. This was a dissertation on hand washing, not kosher food. Helps to read this stuff. (laughs) So here we get more specific. If there was any ambiguity in Mark 7, and I just don't entirely see how there can be, it was cleared up. If Jesus indeed had meant that all reference to unclean things was now obsolete, but uncleanness didn't even exist anymore. You know what? we got a real problem with a whole basketball of New Testament scriptures, not the least of which was Christ's words of Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where he said about as forthrightly as one can that he did not come to abolish the Torah that not one jot or tittle has been done away with and heaven help the person who says it has. Is that what he says? Then there's this statement of Paul in Romans 14 that says if a person thinks that it's unclean, it's unclean. You know, you don't have to read too much about Paul to say that I doubt anybody ever called him a compromiser. He would have made a lousy politician. There is no way, two decades or so after Yeshua's death, that Paul was going to tell someone directly against something that Jesus pronounced. Wasn't going to happen. And if he did, I'm telling you what, I'm throwing away everything Paul ever said. And forget it. Paul would not say if it's unclean for you, then it's unclean if, as the basis for that, there wasn't any such thing as unclean anymore. Further, listen to what Paul says in some of his other letters. We'll go through this quickly. Ephesians 5.5 For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance the kingdom of Christ and of God. Hmm, there's that unclean. But that's not the only place in the New Testament where we find unclean continuing to be referenced to because it exists. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and move among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I'll welcome you. 
Then I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Obviously, the distinction between clean and unclean still exists on earth because here Paul is quoting Yehovah as saying that he'll welcome you into his kingdom if you'll come out from them and separate yourselves from them and touch nothing unclean. Now, let's hear what the Apostle John had to say in the last book of Scripture to be written some 30 years or so after the first of Paul's letters and about 50 years or so after Christ's crucifixion. Revelation 21-22. We're a long way down in history now when this happens. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine upon it for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light shall the nations walk and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory unto it and its gates shall never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. They shall bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean shall enter it. Nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John says no unclean person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and that God's people are to separate themselves from unbelievers and to touch no clean thing that is unclean. John, or rather Paul said that and John basically reiterates it. Here we have New Testament examples of believers being cautioned against involving themselves with unclean things. Obviously there remains, even at the end of days, we're talking Revelation 21 here, Unclean, unclean people and unclean things. They still exist. Now further, as we have discussed on a number of occasions, we live in a parallel universe that I have dubbed the reality of duality. That is, the universe consists of these dual realities that exist simultaneously, the spiritual and the physical. If there is holy in this physical world, there must be holy in the spiritual world. If there is evil in the physical world, there must be evil in the spiritual world. And if there is unclean in the physical world, then there must be unclean in the spiritual world. Here, I'm going to show you but a tiny sampling of scriptures telling us of unclean things still existing not only in the physical world but in the spiritual world and naturally this is all after the advent of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10.1 And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every infirmity. Mark one twenty three, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Acts 5.16 The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Acts 8.7 For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Look, the New Testament speaks clearly 
that unclean still exists in both the physical and the spiritual world. Goodness, if there was no such thing anymore as unclean, why are the apostles warning us to stay away from it? I mean, of course it still exists. Clean things are all things that have not been specifically designated as unclean. And I got news for you. You and I don't get to rewrite the biblical lists of unclean things according to our own desires. And we don't get to scratch any off the list either. The Holy Spirit is not going to give you a brand new unclean thing that never existed before. And he's not going to delete one either. We don't get to change God's word. And the only source of info about what is clean and unclean is to be found in the Torah. Okay, next week we'll continue chapter 12.